The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, the drinks world in 2022. Why what we were drinking last year might not be what we're enjoying this year. We'll talk to drinks industry veteran Richard Siddle to hear his predictions for this new year. Plus, of course, your recommendations for medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's 2022, so what does that mean for what goes into our glasses? Well, more than you might imagine. A combination of poor harvests around the world, the pandemic, the shipping crisis and Brexit could combine to mean that you're forced to think afresh about what you drink this coming year. Then, of course, there's fashion, innovation and trends as well. To guide us with his predictions for 22, who better than drinks industry veteran, the editor-in-chief of The Buyer, friend of this programme, Richard Siddle, uh, who joins us with his own crystal ball. Uh, Richard, uh, good morning. Hello. Welcome to The Drinking Hour. Good morning, Chief. Uh, nice to be on your show and, uh, yeah, look, look forward to, to having a chat. Always nice to be introduced as a veteran. <laughs> uh, I thought you'd like that. Yeah, it's uh, it occasionally uh, tends to insult people, but it's not intended, obviously, no, no, as an no, insult. No. Very much a compliment, uh, and uh, you're certainly uh, a veteran. Uh, just before we talk um, about... Uh, uh, about your predictions uh, and what might happen in 2022. Uh, just for those who don't know you, and there won't be many in the industry who don't know you, but outside the industry, just uh, tell us uh, how you got into what you do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I personally sort of just describe myself as more as a business journalist, a business to business journalist. So um, I have, for the last, my um, word, for like sort of 15 years, I suppose, concentrated on drinks. But prior to that, um, I've actually worked across a number of different uh, business sectors. So for even started my life working on a magazine called Optician um, back in the day, of, <laughs> back in the day of Margaret Thatcher and iTest, can you believe? Um, but I've worked in the uh, computer sector. I spent a lot of my career actually working in grocery retail, so covering the major supermarkets and um, convenience store sector. Uh, I suppose I was covering drinks in those days, but it tends to be more on the the bigger brand category side of things. Uh, had a little, little sojourn into the travel industry, and then I've, I've been part of the, the, the drinks world, I suppose, officially for the last 15 years or so, of which I spent nearly 10 years editing a publication called Harper's Wine and Spirits. About five years ago, I, along with my business partner, Peter Dean, we set up The Buyer, uh, whereby I thought it was time to, to try and do things for myself and keep myself away from pesky publishers and um, actually put in place all the things I've learned working for other people and actually um, try, and, try, and, try and find a gap in the market for, for, for ourselves. So, yeah, so the bar has been going for the last five years. And, uh, yeah, and I'd, I'd like to say that – actually, I always analyse the buyer because we're only online uh, in, in terms of um, football stadiums. So when we started off, we were very much uh, two men and a dog, a dog in, the, in the park. Uh, we've progressed over the years, and uh, I can now very happy say that we, um, we we pack out Wembley Stadium most months. So we, we, we're up to about ninety thousand unique users uh, a month, and um, yeah, we get traffic from 
uh, all over the world, actually, mostly in the UK, but also a good, good chunk from America. So, so yeah, we're, we're, we're basically, our, our job is to try and find, get under the bonnet of the drinks industry, really, and look more at the trends and analysis and uh, very much what we're going to talk about today, really. Well, I, I'm delighted to be part of the buyer and to get under that bonnet. It's about uh, the only bonnet I'm ever likely to get under, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it's a great success, has huge impact uh, globally, as you say. Um, and uh, that that plus your background in uh, the uh, uh, the optical world, um, optometry, um, there that that makes you the perfect person to look ahead to the future. I think. Oh, so, that's very good. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> like a seamless gown. Um, I alluded in the introduction to uh, this this thought that what we were drinking in 2021 might not be what we're drinking in 2022. And that sounds a bit kind of dramatic, uh, a bit of an exaggeration. Um, but it's not really, is it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you definitely, it's a very nice way of summing it up. And I, and I think what, what, what we can sort of take from that really is, um, for example, if you are buying, if, you were, if you're used to drinking Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, then the chances are you won't be drinking New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc below certain price points this year because there simply isn't enough of it and that comes back to what you mentioned earlier as well about harvests and then there are two big overriding trends i suppose that, that are kind of like interconnecting this year one of which is is the supply chain and you probably would have heard in across all kinds of of sectors be it fishing to agriculture to well let's face it um lateral flow tests even um you know there are major problems in the supply chain and that's a global issue and that that all stems a lot from the pandemic in terms of everything shut down all all ports shut down and then very quickly certain ports in the world came back and and you found that places like china yeah asia suddenly were back in back in play whereas the rest of the world was 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 still in lockdown and what you what you had was all these shipping containers suddenly in all all the wrong parts of the world so you've now got a situation where Big ports like Los Angeles, uh, down in Australia, um, into Rotterdam, you know, ships are having to wait up to two or three months just to be able to to, to dock. Never mind get their goods off off ships. So, that, so there's that. It's actually physically getting the drink to us to actually enjoy. Um, but then the, the the second part of that is is this whole issue of, of harvests and the fact that ultimately, in particularly in wine, obviously. Uh, what we drink will, is determined every year by how much wine is actually can be made based on what the weather was like in that country at any one time. So um, that that essentially is is where this whole idea of having to shop around and, and, and potentially buy wines from different parts of the world is going to be really going to come to play this year. Um, mm. if, if you want, I, can, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a quite interesting aspect to this is, is if you go into an average supermarket these days, and look at all the wines on the shelf, and ninety percent of them are probably advertising themselves not necessarily by the chateau, but actually by the grape variety. So we've all become Chardonnay drinkers, or Merlot drinkers, or Malbec drinkers, and we all have our own preferred countries where we get those those varieties from. Hence, why New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc has become so popular. It's, it's a style that people like. But it means that if if that country's harvest has, is very low, um, it means the buyers, supermarket buyers, then have to think about where they can get that grape variety from another country. So it basically gives them the freedom to go and buy you know, millions and millions of litres of, 
of Chardonnay or Shiraz or Cabernet Sauvignon and then basically change which country it comes from based on the volume available and also the price. So it's also mm. impacted by the economy, which is why I was about that's the part of the wine industry I love, actually. It's, it's the kind of the nitty gritty, the economics, um, it's the category stuff rather than necessarily the, the minutiae of how a wine is made is actually how it's bought and shipped and, and how it gets around the world. Yeah, I mean, I first encountered you about five or six years ago when I was doing my diploma at the WSET. So the second act, if you like, of my uh, journalism career, I decided to kind of go back to school and do the diploma in wines and spirits at the WSET in London. And I had to write a research paper as part of that. As anyone who's done the diploma will know, it's quite a piece of work. And uh, the theme was bulk wine. And I was, I knew very little about bulk wine at the time. And there were very few people who had written about it because it was almost a, like bizarrely like a sort of dirty secret or something. And that's how I encountered you in the first place, because uh, you were one of the few people who immediately came up who'd written quite extensively about bulk wine. And uh, it's really interesting uh, when you think about the way bulk wine is sourced uh, and, and delivered, they can just um, switch not just producer, but they can switch entire country and still effectively more or less deliver the same thing, can't they? Yeah. I mean, uh, just to, 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 I mean, to, to clarify what bulk wine is, I mean, bulk wine essentially is, um, again, going back to the supermarket aisle analogy, probably around at least three quarters of the wine on that shelf is probably what you might call bulk wine. And what that means is it's been put into a massive shipping container so they, they basically they, they take the wine from a, a winery in Australia or South Africa or Argentina. They put it in a massive flexi tank and or an, or an enormous great big bag <laughs> with thousands and thousands of liters of wine inside, and they bring it to special bottling plants in the UK, where they are then bottled very carefully, and they are then presented. You know, basically, it's exactly the same as if the wine had been bottled in in the country. Now that. Is, is very good for the planet. It's very good for sustainability because you're not shipping millions of bottles of glass and bottles around the world. And it also, what it, as I say, what it what it sent, it does to some extent make wine a bit of a commodity. Now, I must say, when I first joined the wine industry full time, I, I did struggle for the first couple of years really to sort of get my head around quite how it worked. So a, a big challenge for me, you know, if I'm working in the travel industry, if I'm working in the grocery sector, working in the computer sector. You know, the, the biggest challenge for a B2B journalist, business journalist, is to actually understand how that industry works. And I really struggled with wine because it was like, well, every country, you know, like Burgundy, Rioja regions, you know, they, they all have these various different rules and, and regulations about how the wine is made. And it, it's just so complicated that I found it really difficult. And then suddenly I came across, um, you know, a couple of buyers for one of the major retailers, and they basically essentially described how they buy wine. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's probably no, no much different to a sort of a trading floor in the stock exchange to some extent, and that they have all the, the currency prices around the world, the price of the peso, the price of the Australian dollar, and they're looking at those prices and then they're working out and saying, well, if I buy a million litres of Australian Chardonnay at, say, I don't know, $3 a litre versus how much I can get it for, for it in Chilean pesos, they then switch. They may then switch their supply to Chile and or, and get their Chardonnay from Chile because it's a lot cheaper. And it must be a completely a bit like a Pandora's box, really. Once I'd realised that, it's it's all started slowly, slowly fitting in together. And 
let's face it, the wine industry is very good at like talking itself up and making itself sound very mystical and um, you know all these talk of appellations and um, AVAs and all the rest of it. But ultimately, it is actually just comes down to the price per litre of the massive grape varieties and the size of the harvest per country will dictate how much of the wine industry works. And for example, you know, you've got, the, you've got Australia, Chile, Argentina, South Africa, who make their wine due to their harvests in uh, sort of January to March, February. So you have all those grape varieties being picked sort of like now. So the, the global economy, the global wine market will know in the next couple of months how big the Australian market is going to be, how big the New Zealand harvest is going to be. And they will then be setting prices for those grapes. That will then impact on what price Chile can charge for their wines. It will impact what Argentina, South Africa can charge. And then that will then have a knock-on effect to what happens in Europe when France, Spain, Italy have their harvests in Europe. And all those different volumes, um, all their different um, the quality and the volume of all those different harvests ultimately affects the price of those grapes. And that mm. effect ultimately affects what goes onto the supermarket shelf. So going right back to what you said at the beginning, that's what we mean about why the grapes, sorry, why the wines you're drinking this year will potentially be very different to what you were last year. And it all comes down to, to those harvests and those, those prices, if that's not too... <laughs> too too boring an answer <laughs> no but it's a it's a good answer because it's it, it is uh you know the the uh the reality of the situation and i i wrote a, a piece for you based on an interview uh with uh, leslie cook the uh head of buying for uh, one of the big um uh, bulk uh, producers and bottlers uh lanchester wines and um, I was a- absolutely uh, astonished uh, at at how um, with the, they have to obviously have to do quite a lot of forecasting. They have to know that um, uh, there is uh, there are choppy waters ahead, and uh, they've got a hugely popular um, uh, New Zealand uh, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, uh, which goes into you know into retail, into into pubs and restaurants, and they knew they weren't going to have it basically uh, because of the yeah. uh, shortage of supply. Um, so she went off to South Africa and and basically effectively created something I've tasted it um, which really is true um, to that uh, that Marlborough style and it mm. is um, extraordinary that um, the, the, the trade um, uh, can do that isn't it yeah I, I miss my I, I personally gravitate to those people if I'm at a trade fair or whatever they, they to me are the real engine room of the industry they're, 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 they're at the heart of it all I, I don't get that excited about the fine wine side of things because they say it's a bit, bit above my pay grade, but it's also, you know, what happens in Burgundy and Bordeaux, it's like, well, yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting, but it's kind of be mostly the same every year. Um, whereas, as you say, these these international buyers are incredibly skilled at what they do. You know, and and when you think that that that, that um you know, Leslie in your, your case there, she's probably having to blend millions of litres of wine there. And 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 to do that and to and to create a wine that's almost the same as a wine that she was making thousands of miles away in New Zealand is an incredible skill of, from, of hers, but also the winemaker and the, and the, and the team at Lanchester and at Greencroft Bottling. And, it, and it's, you know, to me, that is for, the, for, for anybody really who wants to try and understand the wine industry, I think you have to understand how the bulk wine sector works. And it really frustrates me that, that, that a vast majority of people in the trade, the wine trade, kind of, as you say, look down on the bulk wine sector as though it's somehow inferior or somehow a bit as you say dirty um whereas if 
you didn't have the bulk wine industry, you effectively wouldn't have a wine industry because I think now, I think nine out of the top 10 selling wine brands in the UK are all bottled in the UK. So every, everything, all the Australian brands, the Argentinian, the Chilean, New Zealand's, you know, they're all being bottled in the UK. And, and yet you might look at the label and think, oh, Castellari or Del Diablo or whatever, you know, that, that's obviously bottled in Chile. Well, it, well it's not. It, it's made in Chile. Um, so in a way, you could argue it's a bit of a kind of a route to market and does it really matter? And I think um, what we're going to see is, is, I think we're going to talk about it later on as well, with the sustainability situation, there's going to be more pressure on all supply chains and retailers and wineries to behave better or to perform better on a sustainable level. And I think uh, bulk allows them to do that in a, in, a, in a very, very good way. I mean, clearly, you're not going to be able to like ship, you know, 40, 50 pound wines in bulk, you know, there's a certain level that, that it, it, it covers. But for the for the mass market, uh, I mean, we are, I mean, if, if we were sort of like talking about the film or the, or the music world here, we, we are talking about, the, you know, the, the top, the top um, is the main, the main part of the sector, you know, we're not talking about all the indie bands and all the, all the mm. niche independent movies that are being made. It's, it, this is, this is the kind of the mass market wine sector, but that yeah, is it's the blockbusters. It's not drive. the uh, art house stuff you mean. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, exactly. yeah. And the so, sustainability thing is really important here, isn't it? Because if you ship this giant floating bag in box of wine across the world, um, the quality is there. The technology is there to uh, to 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 guarantee that it uh, comes off uh, the you know the, the ship the way it, it went on. But also, you've got a lot less weight uh, in that uh, ship. You've got a lot less weight uh, being hauled around by uh, trucks and trains at, at either end. So it does score on the sustainability front as well. Bulk doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I think, I think actually it's one of those that, that that's kind of where a lot of the retailers are, are pushing that as well. Um, it's all part of their B Corp agenda, and it's it it it, it, it ticks those boxes but i mean but yeah i mean essentially it's, it's the price as well i mean it's the two together um and i think it depends on which pr person talking to <laughs> they'll they'll tell the pr story about being sustainable but the, the pricing fact, factor is also is key but the, the two go go hand in hand and um in fact yeah when you, you mentioned there i mean it, it is fascinating there's a, there's a there's an event every year called the world, world bulk wine exhibition and you know, normal wine trade fairs, you know, you, you go along and a, and a producer will happily take you through seven or eight of their wines and they'll talk about each wine in great detail and they'll, they'll, they'll tell you exactly how it was made, you know, how long it was in the barrel, how long, how long the malolactic fermentation took place and all this malarkey. Um, and then you go along to the Bull Wine Fair and you'll come across a Moldova producer or a producer from Romania or a producer from Australia, and they literally will just almost have test tubes on the table, and you, and it, and they'll actually basically say, you know, minimum order ten thousand liters at zero point five euros a liter, and there's no talk at all of the <laughs> the nuance of wine. It's literally, it's literally just done on a on a you know you taste it, you like the price, you buy, and I love it. I think it's great. I mean, it just cuts. Yeah. All- it, it's a culture shock, though. I, I tell you, I, I covered it um, because you were away in Australia. Um, so I went along to Amsterdam to, to the World Bulk Wine Exhibition um, for the buyer covering you. Um, and it was such a, um, an eye opener. I, I had not enough of an idea uh, just how that all worked and, until I went there. It was fascinating. But I went to, I remember going yeah. to the Moldova stand and uh, 
and, and oh. saying, oh, you know, have you got some interesting indigenous grape varieties? And they looked at me, um, and, and just, just their eyes sort of widened, and they're like, why are you here? And of course, they, they said, yes, they do have indigenous grape varieties, but that's not what they were there to sell. And you can imagine um, what, what an idiotic question that must have um, uh, must have looked like, uh, really, can't you? And I know, yeah. Well, also, I mean, I, 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 mean, I love going to trade shows, and not because what necessarily happens in the trade show, and this is my excuse for hanging out in bars until the early hours of the morning, it's it's who who goes, who are in, who's having conversations. So when you're walking around the, um, the Bolt Wine Fair, and then suddenly you see, you know, the head buyer from Tesco or the head buyer from Sainsbury's, and then, and then you see all the various different suppliers, wine suppliers, who perhaps six months ago have been talking to you about some of their fine wines and pushing all their fine wine agenda. And then suddenly you see the same supplier with the head of Tesco going around and you think, all right, okay, so this is what they, this is what they actually do. This is, this is where they really make their money. And it's, that, it is absolutely that to me, as I say, it was like, it was like the Wizard of Oz, but actually to be honest, rather than pulling back and finding a little man with a, with a few, few um few <laughs> few things to pull there was a whole in that's where the industry was it was almost like my god there's this other world um yeah, and, uh, yeah so yeah, i would urge anybody who's, who's really interested in wine um to to actually really get into it and, and to look at it all and to uh, that's where i personally think you, you you see wine in 3d rather than through a kind of a fine wine lens Mm. Um, which is not really the whole, which is not really the industry side of the of wine. Going back to those poor harvests, and uh, when I say poor harvests, uh, just to to, uh, uh, to be clear, uh, what's being produced uh, in New Zealand um, in terms of Sauvignon Blanc and the rest is is excellent quality, as I understand it. It's just the quantity um, that is uh, the the problem. Um, but it's not just New Zealand. Um, Europe. Um, large parts of it, anyway, um, had a um, a pretty disastrous uh, time last year, uh, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think France, France, are saying it's you know one of the, in certain regions it's the worst worst half of decade. I think part of Burgundy, you know, eighty ninety percent of of the crop was was lost in for some in certain appellations. Probably probably in it, probably about forty percent overall. But um, so yeah, I mean, then again in Italy, Spain. Different parts of of Europe, there were massive frosts and um, real bad weather conditions last year. Um, so again, going back to that global picture, what it what it means essentially is um, all the wine that was is being made now, as it were, as it was picked, picked, i.e., in October. Some of that wine will be coming onto the market next summer. Some of it will be, most of it will be coming on online, perhaps the following summer. But it means going going back to your Leslie analogy. You know, these buyers are, are looking at, at trends for the next eighteen months, two years. So they're they're looking to put in prices, and make predictions, and buy buy wine on on a long term basis. So again, that's why the pressure, the fact that there's there's a lot less wine coming out of places like New Zealand means that in normal years they could rely on places like the Loire or parts of, of France to 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 um make up the the difference whereas this year there isn't they, they don't have the wine either um so actually Sauvignon Blanc in general maybe maybe a lot harder to find this year so people will be looking at different kind of styles that are similar to Sauvignon Blanc to to offer um and yeah you'll you'll you'll, you'll <laughs> we will find supermarkets will be promoting different countries um and different styles 
Um, and, you know, you, we may not really notice it that much. It's just that, you know, you, you'll just find that your that your normal bottle that you've always gone to um, probably isn't there or may not be there. Um, you know, but to, to, but to just a box clever, really, and, and, and be aware of that and, and look at what else they may be offering as, as an alternative because it probably will be very close in style to what to what you did like before. Um, yeah, bring on the Bacchus then uh, for uh, <laughs> so you know, exactly. maybe its moment has come. Um, what about uh, Brexit? Because um, if we just park um, what uh, you know, the, the political stuff in terms of whether it was a good idea or not, um, because uh, that gets rehearsed um, quite a lot, really, and people are pretty, um, in my opinion, I think they're pretty dug in whether they still think it's a good idea or whether they've always thought it was a terribly bad idea. Um, it has caused some significant issues um, and potentially um, because of a delay in the implementation in terms of import um, of goods, um, it may yet uh, this month cause um, some more issues. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in very, in very basic terms, what, what, what Brexit has done has just unleashed a red tape nightmare which is ironic because that's that's what, it is rather isn't it yeah what politicians have been claiming that they doesn't want to do but um yeah i mean there's some real horror stories well um, i think now to import a bottle of wine or or a bottle of um beer or spirits from from anywhere in eu in the past it was just a very quick electronic um automatic system I think now it involves almost something like 200 pieces of paper and, and, and copious forms and, and everybody down the supply chain has to have a different piece of paper and the lorry driver in Italy has to have a certain piece of paper to go to the winery and they have to have a certain piece of paper to give to them. So the chances of it all falling apart are, are massive and it means that um, the lead times in terms of getting wine into the market is you know, anywhere between six to ten weeks um, delayed. Uh, but uh, another aspect to all this is, is um, I mean, the, 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 it wasn't actually really, it's a bit of a bit of misnomer to say, but the government currently is going through what they're calling a alcohol review. So they're, they're kind of reviewing how all our drinks are taxed. And, you know, as we know, the duty levels on, on alcohol in the UK are enormous. And they're, they're probably the largest outside of Ireland in the EU for by some way. Um, so it wasn't actually down to what, what the EU could or couldn't do with our alcohol review, but, but for some reason the government are kind of um, are, are positioning it that way. But at the moment they're, they're kind of doing consultation on supposedly making it sort of simpler and fairer. But as ever with these things, <laughs> it actually makes it even more complicated and potentially more expensive. So... Um, there's, there's the WSTA, WSTA, the trade body, have done quite a lot of research into this. And essentially it's saying, you know, a lot of the major brands that we're used to buying, you know, they could all be 30, 40, 50, 60p more um, under these new tax regulations if they, if they go through. So mm. in a way, Brexit's knock-on effect is, is the fact that the governments are really pushing forward with their own alcohol reform, even though they didn't actually need to do that. Um, so that, that's another another aspect to the Brexit issue. Um, yeah. But as you say, you know, we, we are we, we are you know we are what we are. Brexit is here, and, and people are going to have to get used to uh, dealing in more forms. And a, and a lot of this form filling is now. It was 
um, suspended for most consumer goods. Uh, wine was a bit of a front runner because it's obviously it's not a, um, a perishable good. Um, but now you've got a situation whereby all this form filling exercises is now being uh, deployed for all all goods coming in from the EU. So you may well be finding there are supply chain issues in large parts of the supermarkets. There could well be lots more shortages of, of fresh fresh food and um, and other goods coming in. So so that's a, a non drinks issue, but it's it is related. Yeah, and we're just going to have to get used to paying a bit more for our wines and spirits. Really, that that's the bottom line, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean you could argue it's probably a quite a canny way for the government to with their health agenda as well. I mean, let's face it, they, there's been long been a, a high taxation policy for for drink, which is supposed to look at you know obviously make us drink less and have have an impact on all our all our health, which again is another contentious issue. But um, I suppose you could argue all that is a nice nice way of increasing our drinks products uh, in a in a way that makes us. <laughs> makes makes us all feel as though it's fairer when when it's not at all. Um, but yeah, I think essentially we are going to have to get used to paying more. Um, and, and and arguably, you could say if that is the case, if you are going to spend spending, um, you know, a pound more, fifty p more, and pound more, then potentially why not look at spending a little bit more than that and trying to move a little bit more and and buy buy better. Really, I guess that's the the message that I know the trade is always keen to push across is, you know, we don't all need to be buying wine between five and eight pounds all the time. You know, we can try and push it up a little bit, try and try and get those price points moving, not and not just because of cost and supply chain, but because we actually want to have more quality wine in our glass as opposed to mm-hmm. having it mostly full of duty and shipping costs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll cool. drink to that. That's, uh, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> So that's uh, we've covered the shipping crisis uh, um, and uh, harvest uh, shortfalls and, and Brexit um, and uh, some of those tax issues. All the, all as well. the big signs, Chief. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but let, let's um, in, in the next part let's let's look ahead to some of the uh, trends. Uh, we've touched on sustainability, but uh, formats uh, that kind of thing. We'll do that in just a moment after we've um, cheered ourselves up with uh, some recommendations uh, from. Uh, the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The drinking hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame for medal-winning wines and spirits, all of these from the 2021 judging process. Uh, First of all, uh, Richard mentioned there the genius of those supermarket wine buyers. Uh, Here's a gold medal winner with 95 points. Uh, Connoisseur Tesco Finest Block 18 Cabernet Sauvignon 2019, made for Tesco by that uh, big-name winery, Connoisseur. Uh, The judges, uh, who included Alistair Cooper, MW, and also 
Kelly Stevenson, both of them uh, past guests on The Drinking Hour. Uh, they said of this wine, lovely aromatic profile of fresh blackberry and earthy aromas of cedar and dark chocolate with a silky and persistent texture. Cardamom, clove and black pepper spice combine with beautifully balanced and well-integrated tannins and linger lovingly on the finish. We were also talking about New Zealand just now, uh, Richard and I, and here's a wine from the previous harvest, 2020, that scored really well with the judges. Yeelan's Pinot Noir 2020 uh, was a silver medal winner with 92 points. The judges said, bunches of freshly picked berry aromas mingle with sage and pine needle hints. There's a lovely savoury backbone here and dark strawberry notes evolving on the palate. Very attractive. And if you don't know Yeelands, uh, it's a big brand, widely available. Um, it's an accomplished producer with a uh, real focus on sustainability and also one of New Zealand's uh, rising star winemakers, chief winemaker, uh, Natalie Christensen. So really good quality wines. And uh, could this be rum's big year? Joel Harrison uh, certainly thought so when we were uh, looking ahead to 2022 in the last edition of The Drinking Hour, our festive special. Uh, so here's one from Panama, a silver medal winner, uh, Mezan Chiriqui Rum. Uh, this is distilled in column stills and then aged in ex-bourbon barrels, uh, like they do for scotch, uh, before being transferred to Muscatel barrels. Uh, the finished rum is uncoloured, unsweetened, and it's not chill filtered. The judges said, easy and unctuous with almond, nutmeg and maple syrup. Vanilla cream and caramel provide a subtle sweetness, relaxed and delicious. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to a special edition to mark the new year of The Drinking Hour with uh, our sage Richard Siddle, the editor-in-chief of uh, The Buyer, and uh, we've talked about uh, some of the huge challenges uh, facing uh, the drinks uh, industry as it approaches uh, this new year. Uh, let's look at um, some of those um, trends, some of the things we're likely to see that are not necessarily dictated by harvest shortfalls or uh, the shipping crisis or, uh, or, or Brexit. Um, what about formats? Because um, I'm a big um, believer in um, the can, wine in a can, yet actually uh, you know, the quality of the wine in a can has some way to go by and large. Uh, it's still quite often just the, the cheaper stuff, although there are some really good examples now like the Canned Wine Co, um, the Copper Crew, they spring to mind where the quality is really, really good. But it's a great format. Do you think we're going to see um, a move away from what we consider to be the bottle of wine? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose as, as a, as you call me, a veteran or a sage, I suppose if I had a pound for every time I've written, I, I started the year by writing about, is this the year for different formats? I probably could um, afford a nice long-haul flight somewhere that I can't, I can't go on. <laughs> I mean, every year we do we do talk about this, and it kind of starts, and then it kind of fades away again. I think this year, though, because of the sustainability drive and because of what we, you know, obviously the last six months with the whole Glasgow COP event, um, and I think that the, just the general societal shift towards climate change and, and actually doing something about it, I think the consumer is going to become a lot more open to the idea of, of cans or bag-in-the-box or pouches or whatever it might be. 
And I think, as you mentioned there, it's the quality. Because bottom line is that, you know, we can all try a can of, of wine or we can try a can of G&T or whatever else we can, we can pick up in, in convenience stores or at train stations. But by and large, you know, they, 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 they pale in, in, in quality to what you can normally get, um, you know, in glass. Um, but the, it, is, it is changing in the same way, same way that, um, you know, technology has improved for things like bulk wine. It's also massively improved for, for smaller formats. And um, you, we only have to look as near as uh, the Scandinavian market. You know, in, in Scandinavia, you know, uh, back in box is enormous. It's, 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 it's kind of like one of the – I think it's, 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 it's right up there with glass in terms of, like, how much proportion of wine is sold. So producers around the world have had to really up their quality game. So their level of, of, of quality has improved. So they're putting much better wines – into bagging box and it, it also fits quite nicely into this sort of drinking less drinking better messaging because if you have a can a wine clearly you know it's it's a lot easier to monitor how much you're drinking um equally bagging box it means that you can you know have a couple of glasses and and and, and keep the uh, the wine fresh you don't feel like you need to finish the extra half bottle sadly <laughs> but you um so you think you've got that those two things going along side by side but i think ultimately is the quality and interestingly uh, i think it was in back in the last year there was an actual standalone uh, trade event in the industry whereby lots of suppliers came together and they only showed uh, wine that was being sold in different formats so every every wine there um was being you know displayed in either a can or a package or a different kind of packaging and um, the, the the quality. I mean, everybody who went, you know, came back and said, you know, they were blown away by the quality. So I think actually, is a lot of perception. You know, mm. the biggest biggest gatekeepers to all this is the trade itself. It's convincing supermarket buyers to give it more shelf. It's convincing bar bar owners, bartenders to to to, to push and promote these things. I mean, really, really, you have to look at what's happening in the, in the mixer world. Um, you know, the premium mixers. You know, I can remember interviewing the guys at Fever Tree when they first started out, and um, you know wow. they're, they're they're close to billionaires now. You know, and um, yeah. but ultimately they 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 are they're dealing in small packaging formats, and it's I think that is that that is the the, the key is is actually getting the gatekeepers in the sector. It's the getting bartenders, bar owners, the buyers behind it, um, and really and really giving giving it a massive focus in the stores rather than it being something which people kind of go to and then they they kind of give up on it but um the quality's mm. there and the, yeah um, it certainly is yeah, yeah. If, if people aren't convinced then uh, i mean there are some dreadful wines in cans unfortunately i i uh, wrote my uh, monthly column for clubbing your logic about this in the summer and got myself in a bit of hot water with a few um sort of producers because some of it's just really awful and yet at the other end i mentioned the canned wine company uh and, and uh, Copper Crew Mirabeau has a nice uh, rosé in can. Uh, so does Chateau Leoub. There are some really nice uh, wines out there. Um, it's just a matter of, of shifting perceptions. It's interesting you mentioned bag in box as well, because um, that convenience factor uh, that you alluded to um, is, is huge in Scandinavia. I think it's the highest proportion of single occupancy households in the world in the Scandinavian markets. And so you can open the fridge door, have a glass of wine, and, and it's not going to go off and you don't have the pressure to finish the bottle and all the rest of it. And you also have amazing artwork on those boxes as well, don't you? There's a lovely design 
uh, opportunity there to rethink the way wine looks on the shelf as well, isn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look. At, I mean, I think that's actually where where canned beer has been has just been brilliant. I mean, if you look, if you go into a specialist beer store, and the the, the, the the beer section for cans is just fantastic. It's like a kind of a Andy Warhol <laughs> library. You know, they're, they're just yeah. brilliant um, executions. And and I think um, yeah, how the 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 uh, we could actually look uh, take a lot of lessons from the beer industry because um, let's face it, the beer sector has a lot of uh, uh, hang ups about quality and it has a lot of like perceptions and and people will only want to have beer served to them in a certain way but how quickly the craft beer sector has completely transformed the idea of a beer in a can you know and and they've found the quality and they've found the way of delivering it so they've already sort of like set out the roadmap in a way so there's definitely an opportunity for, for, for wine producers um but yeah so and the, the other aspect to all this actually is is, is the, the is the glass factor, um, and again it's a bit of a sort of a contentious issue about how damaging glass is or or not. But clearly the weight issue for glass, and there is definitely an, um, a growing growing uh, movement, I think, in the packaging world to question glass as a as a as a mode of transport and as, and as a and as a packaging format. Not necessarily in wine, but in other 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 consumer goods areas, and I think what we're going to see is um, over the, over the coming years, there's going to be more pressure on glass. I think there's going to be more of a question mark about whether or not glass is the right format for for mm. consumer goods, and I think wine may find itself in a situation where it's on the wrong side of the argument if it doesn't start thinking about alternatives. Um, yeah. You know, there's a very much of an entrenchment factor that says, "Oh no, glass is fine. We don't need to change it. It's all okay." But if yeah. you start, we go into the any health and beauty sector shops, or go into perfume shops, or wherever else. There's, there's definitely a movement away. There's, there's definitely more kind of very similar to glass, but not glass formats um, being introduced. Mm-hmm. And, and I know, talking to some packaging experts, that they they definitely forecasting. They see a big sort of five, ten year agenda against glass. So it is definitely an area where we need to be more aware of it as an industry. And again, I don't think we are. Um, and um, it's something that we certainly will be addressing and looking at, um, you know, and um, but ultimately the consumers will vote with their feet. I mean, we only have to, have to see how quickly plastic um, suddenly became and came on the radar and, and how, much, how much plastic is now um, frowned upon. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Things, yeah. things can move very quickly. So exploring different formats and having a different format strategy um, has to be part of um, the drinks industry's agenda. And you presumably could have written for the last few years as a prediction that sustainability, the planet, um, was going to be a major issue for consumers. Um, but uh, yeah, the fact is, um, it's it's not going away as an issue, is it? It's, it's only going to grow, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a bit, there's, but again, you could argue there's just a real disconnect between what consumers want and talk about and then what they actually buy. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's, there's always been that, that, that kind of... Uh, inconsistency, I suppose, and, and, and I guess lots of uh, drinks companies have, I suppose, not gone as far as they could because they know that they haven't had to. Um, but I, the, the number of companies now that are signing up to B Corp um, certification and 
going out of their way to be seen to be green. And again, I think this this, this drive will come not from the drinks industry, but from outside. So it'll be it'll be companies like Nike, it'll be the likes of Coca-Cola, the Unilevers, the, the um, Procter & Gamble's and all the consumer goods that they have. And it'd be the messaging that they that they keep on pushing and the steps that they're taking that will suddenly suddenly people will start going, Well, okay, well, well what a Puerto Rico, what a Diageo, what a what's my favorite spirits company doing? What's my favorite wine brand doing on this area? And um and I, I think quite a lot of them fall short, to be honest. Um, you know, they, 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 a lot of people talk the talk, but, you know, in terms of actually putting in the real long-term measures to change how they, they produce the drinks that they do, the amount of water that's used, you know, all these things, there's an enormous amount that could still be done. And it's, it's interesting, for example, that there's a, a body called the International Wine Wineries Against Climate Action, um, set up by uh, Miguel Torres or the Torres family in Spain and the Jackson family in, in, in Napa. And that's had enormous uh, PR and enormous sort of um, push behind it. And yet, I think only around 10 or 12 producers have actually signed up to it, um, mm. which is which is kind of staggering, really. Um, and I'm, and I'm, But they, they put in very strenuous conditions about membership, which is all around measuring your carbon footprint and going way beyond... Um, just having a kind of a, a green policy, you have to kind of prove it, and I think that's that's where the consumers will start questioning. They'll start really getting into what are you doing, and they'll they'll do that first with the big consumer brands, but then that will definitely trickle down into wine um, and yeah. spirit and beer. Um, so it may be something that we'll be talking about for a number of years to come, Chief. It's a very good point. Um, now you mentioned you alluded to health earlier on and the the kind of uh, tax and health agendas colliding low and no um so low alcohol or no alcohol um that's been a huge area for growth in the drinks industry in recent years many people listening now might be doing dry january do you think that's got some uh, some more uh sort of uh space to grow i think the I think again the um, the lighter drinks category is is definitely being driven by beer again. I think that that's where we're seeing the really authentic products and we're seeing the naught percent the quality, I suppose, in 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 some of the bigger brands and their naught percent versions have has has have really changed the dial on all this. I mean, we can all remember years ago when they you know the likes of Calibra were, were kind of the, the the only the only drink in town and, oh, and how God, bad it yeah. was. Oh, um, but, yeah, but now you know. You, but now Peronis, you know Heineken's, Carlsberg's. I mean, they've all got very credible. Uh, you know, I mean Guinness even has its own zero percent, and all of them are a nice, nice quality drinks. Um, and the, the 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 problem, I suppose, with wine is that there hasn't really been a brand at a, at a very low level um, that's that, that's proven any kind of quality credential that would that you could put put your hat on what i would say with talking about wine in particular is it doesn't need to be as low as five four three percent zero percent to to be necessarily uh, be deemed as lighter you know there's a lot of movement now to having wines between 11 and 13 percent um which okay it's it, it sounds like a lot of alcohol, but compared to 14s and 15s that we were we were used to having, sort of five ten years ago, you know, the majority of wine now on, on our shelves 
are probably sort of 13 and a half percent and below mm-hmm. um particularly from 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 parts of europe so there's there's definitely a lot of choice you know um in that kind of 11 to 13 and a half area and i think if you are looking to cut down buying wines in that area there's a lot of lot of really good quality well, well amazing quality and amazing choice so okay it's not like going going way down way down the scale um but it's a starting point but yeah i mean i think that the 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 spirits and the wine and the, and the beer worlds are definitely where the quality and the authenticity well not necessarily authenticity but they're definitely where the quality is um mm. for lighter style drinks and, it, and it's and it's a massive market and i think what you could argue is it's not necessarily the lighter alcohol drinks that are going to win out it's going to be the the non-alcoholic drinks completely it's the it's the kind of the mixes it's the the whole raft of sort of more adult drinks that have come into play that are quality drinks in their own in their own you know they're, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily related to alcohol at all um so so i think that that is a is where a lot of focus see what they're doing in those areas you know, I think it might be a little bit longer before wine can really credibly play in that area. But, you know, that's where the consumer wants to go um, and is going. Um, so it clearly makes sense for, for drinks companies to do what they can, but to do it in an authentic way that's that's going to make the consumers come back and buy another bottle. Yeah, and it's innovation that's driven by consumer demand rather than creating a product uh, which uh, consumers then flock to. And I think that's a, a really um, you know, crucial point that you, you make there. Uh, one final thought before we let you go um, uh, from your, um, your, uh, your, your predictions for the year. Um, you've written in The Buyer about uh, the growth of the metaverse. Um, this is all a bit of a, um, this is quite mind-blowing, actually. Um, uh, but you make a um, compelling um, point about uh, about how it uh, can relate to um, the drinks that we choose. Um, just just um, in a nutshell, explain the metaverse and, uh, and, and how it might impact drinks. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I know, it made me sound like a, a journalist from The Wired magazine now. But, um, yeah, I mean, essentially, metaverse is a kind of, taking our personality on social media and dressing it all up and almost kind of creating a personality out of it. So rather than, you know, your, you, you could argue it's sort of to do with, um, we, we spend a lot of time looking at what people are doing in advertising. And yes, okay, with social media, we can talk to brands and we can send them messages and they can reply back, but it's all very, very one dimensional. What the metaverse, I think, allows us all to do is sort of all go online into one big new space whereby we can can actually have our own personality or be it an avatar be it through be it through um a mechanism whereby you then participate with brands so you're you're we're almost like working in another in another sphere if that, that makes sense and i think from a from a brand point of view it's about how brands can 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 really in a kind of almost 360 way demonstrate who they are because even through a website or through a video or through an Instagram post, again, it's it, it's pretty, it, that's what we've been used to. In this new world, you, they can create their own digital versions of themselves. So you can go into a vineyard, you could go into a distillery and you could walk around in a virtual world. You know, you could, you could play games in there. You can, um, you can communicate with, with the distiller or the, or the winemaker in a way that, that, that we, we can't do currently. It's, it's, it's a very, it's taking us into a different uh, platform, which again, it's hard to, to sort of like 
totally understand, but it's 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 what, for example, just to give you some some um, probably easy to give you some examples to, to, to explain what I mean is there are platforms, gaming platforms that a lot of like teenagers use, like Roblox and Fortnite, whereby brands are going into those games and they're creating adver- adverts and they're advertising their, their themselves within those games so they actually become part of the game. So if someone's buying, buying a drink or something or other, it's the drink that they buy is their drink, but it's, it's then, then it's the advertising around it. So you can you can create an avatar, go in, and then Gucci, for example, you can go and buy your own Gucci clothes with real money, and then you can dress your avatar in your Gucci clothing, or you can buy Nike trainers, and you can buy Nike trainers and wear them on your avatar in this game. Um, so that you're actually brands are actually using real money, um, well NVTs I call them, but they um, so you're actually then becomes a new e- commerce world as well it's a, it's a big opportunity for luxury brands i mean uh, uh, and apparently in china it's massive so lots of the 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 the, the younger world younger consumer spending a lot of time in these sort of digital virtual games and lots of luxury brands promote themselves and as i say create games they they sell products they do initiatives within those digital worlds that are completely separate to what they're doing in on the high street or on social media. So that's where I feel the drinks industry has a great opportunity to sort of like find a way in which it becomes relevant within that. Um, yeah. But it's very early days, but it, 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 it's, it's kind of, we may find, Chief, if we were doing this uh, podcast in a year's time, we'll be both sitting here in our avatars and talking to each other. <laughs> dressed in whatever God knows what we might want to be dressed in. You know, My avatar is going to be a bit slimmer than I am after Christmas, I think. <laughs> um, it's fascinating, and it's no doubt something we'll, um, we'll uh, remember where we were when we first talked about um, uh, the metaverse. Um, but uh, from Brexit to the metaverse, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you uh, with your thoughts about what uh, we might see in 2022. Um, thank you so much for your time um, and your insight, Richard. Brilliant. Thank you, David. It's been really, really great. And uh, best of luck with the rest of your series. And um, it's great to have The Drinking Hour listen to every week. Thank you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So there's just time before we go for some more medal-winning recommendations from the IWSC. And let's start at the top. A gold medal winner from California. Tower Road, Petite Syrah, 2018, from J. Lower Vineyards, from Paso Roble. Uh, Petite Syrah is the American name for what the Australians would call Durif. Awarding their gold medal, the judges said, elegance, balance and complexity are the hallmarks of this wine. Uh, The ripe plum and blackberry fruit is juicy yet crunchy and fresh. The palate is smooth with very well handled oak and tannin management. Very good wine, they said. Uh, Petite in Syrah, by the way, is a reference to the small berries, uh, not the plant itself. Uh, so well done to uh, Jay Lower. Uh, next, a wine that I adore from Argentina, Kaiken Obertura Cabernet Franc 2018, scored a silver medal with 92 points. Of this, the judges said, rich and ripe blue fruit with floral notes and hints of spice. Good drive, elegance and harmony to the palate with freshness, fine tannins and well-integrated oak. I'd echo all of that 
um, move over Malbec uh, because Cabernet Franc from Argentina really is uh, so exciting. Not that it's going to replace Malbec, but it's um, well worth trying if you uh, haven't uh, discovered that yet. Finally, uh, to Portugal, where there's such variety and value on offer, uh, Monte Sao Sebastião Reserva 2019 won a silver medal uh, from the beautiful uh, Douro Valley, where it's grown alongside olives. Uh, the judges said, uh, gentle and creamy texture to the floral and lime-fruited palate. And if you don't know this uh, grape variety, uh, Rabigato, um, it plays a really important role in Duro white blends, uh, where it adds uh, acidity and structure. So uh, well worth trying those uh, whites from the Duro. That is it for another edition of The Drinking Hour, the first of 2022. Uh, my thanks to uh, the chief, Richard Siddle, uh, for his insight and his crystal ball. Uh, more of that uh, in the buyer, of course. And... Uh, I like the idea of a crystal ball, but uh, that's rather different. Um, anyway, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, hope you're going to keep safe and well and do join us again next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.